This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm actually sitting here drinking a glass of whiskey in a desperate attempt to be cool because today's guest is ridiculously cool and I feel like interviewing him, I have to do something to sort of up my street cred. Uh, I've got Tom W. Bell on the show. He is a legal scholar, uh, a dad. I know that's very important uh, to him. He's a surfer. He's a musician. He's an artist. He's an inventor. He's consulting on charter cities and basically everything he does seems super fascinating and cool. And he lives out in, you know, sunny Southern California. He has a charmed life. So I gra- I grabbed this glass of whiskey, hoping that by sipping it while I interviewed him, it would sort of raise me up to his level. Tom, uh, welcome to the podcast. Well, I raise a toast to you, Isaac. Thank <laughs> you for that introduction, man. I got nothing here to drink. I, uh, I should have a cigar for you, my friend. I yes. should be smoking a cigar. <laughs> okay, so so first, because what I want to talk about, the main thing I want to talk about today is is polycentric law, and we'll get into sort of what that, that's a kind of a mouthful, what that means and the implications. But before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit more about you. Um, where did you grow up, Tom, and how did you end up getting into law? I grew up around the Kansas City area. My family on both sides are basically come from farming people. And grew up in little towns out in the country, and then eventually, I kind of got more and more urban as I, you know, as I matured. Like all of us, I guess, uh, the world's becoming urbanized. And I got into law because uh, it's hard to live in an urban area without a job. <laughs> I mean, you could do it, but that's not my style. <laughs> so, uh, no, actually, I got into law because it was really interesting. I was studying philosophy, and I liked that the law had an applied aspect to it. And so, when I got into my master's in philosophy, I didn't go for the PhD because I was getting kind of Getting kind of tired of all the theory, just theory, and I got introduced to the law then, and then I went to law school, and it all worked out great. Now I teach. So when you went to law school, was the plan just get a degree in law because there'll be job opportunities, maybe I'll go work for a law firm, or was it always to go into academia to be a scholar? It was actually, it's actually both, really. I mean, I just thought I'll go into practice first, I'll pay off my loans, I'll get some great experience, and then I'll go into academia. And and is that how it ended up happening? Yeah. Okay, so you practiced law for for how many years? Not too long. It must have been like two and a half years maybe in uh, Silicon Valley first and then Washington, D.C. So was it like copyright type stuff? No, it wasn't. I did a little bit of intellectual property when I was a litigator, but uh, no, it was kind of just high-tech law, startup stuff, uh, and then that was in Silicon Valley. And then I did large regulated infrastructure industries in D.C., which sounds boring and mostly was, but it gave me a chance to have a hand, a small hand, in shutting down the Interstate Commerce Commissions, and that and that was pretty cool. Hey, I will raise my glass to that. <laughs> <laughs> I might need more whiskey. Um, so, what was the transition then from from you know working in sort of corporate law to going into academia? What made you choose that, and and how did that come about? Uh, well, I wasn't actually doing well. To, well, to a private practice or corporate law means you're doing transactional stuff, and I, okay. I wasn't doing that. I was a litigator, but um, it was fine. It was great. I, uh, I, you know, enjoyed practicing, but I think in part because I knew I wasn't going to do it forever. You, so you uh, were in the courtroom a lot. No, that, not a lot. I was right? a young attorney at a big firm. No, okay. so young attorneys at big firms don't get into the courtroom. I was a litigator, but 
almost nothing goes to trial anymore. Yeah, so it was mostly settled. Yeah, mostly settlements, yeah. Well, it's discovery and drafting pleadings, and uh, I had some small cases, so I did get to do depositions and court appearances, and that was good, but not actual litigation. So so um, you decided to uh, go, go into academia just because you were ready for a change? Oh, I wasn't just ready for a change. I probably could have practiced for a while longer. It's just I knew long term that would be a much more uh, uh, suitable career for me. Yeah. And did you go out? You know, you're at Chapman University now. Um, Is that where you went or were you at another university first? No, no. I went to uh, University of Dayton first. And I took off a year. Is the flyer, the Dayton Flyers? Is that right? That's right. right. The yeah. Flyers. I think that's what they are. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> they used to, you know, they were a Mac team. I went to Western Michigan, so you know, they used to play the Dayton Flyers and the Akron Zips, all those Ohio Mac teams. I wouldn't know. <laughs> and I spent a year off at Cato, and then I went to Chapman. Okay, gotcha. So at Chapman, you teach. You teach. Um, you teach undergrads? No, I'm at a law school, so I only have graduate students. So you're just at the, okay, so it's, it is the law school there at Chapman. That's right. They For some reason, I totally forgot that they had a law school there. It's a beautiful, beautiful campus. Um, oh, yeah. Quite, quite idyllic. Okay, so you're teaching law students, but you also are doing some uh, consulting work, and you've been involved in a lot of these sort of charter cities initiatives in the last few years. Um, is that been an area that you've always been interested in and you've had as sort of a, a, an area of research for many, many years, or is that somewhat recent? Uh, yeah, good question. Actually, it goes way back. I Before I went to law school, I, I took a year off between my master's in philosophy and going to law school, and I spent it at the Institute for Humane Studies. And I, at that uh, time, was just getting interested in polycentric law, anarchism, things like that. I had studied under uh, John Hospers, who allegedly coined the word libertarian. I studied under him at U- U- USC, Southern Cal, and he got me turned on to political philosophy. And uh, so I started thinking about it back then. Yeah. So that's been the the, the uh, polycentric law idea or competing legal jurisdictions has been something you've been interested in oh, yeah. for, for a long time. 30 years. Yeah, I guess like 30 years. If you sit down and do the math, it's something like that. It's a long time. Man. Yeah. So what's so interesting is... The first time I ever heard um, of this concept, and by the way, I, I saw on your website that uh, you are credited with coining the phrase polycentric <laughs> law. So, uh, I got that from Google. That's what they say. Huh? <laughs> we, we trust Google. Um, but the first time I ever heard it, I actually think it was that phrase that was used. Somebody dropped that on me maybe 10 years ago, and I was like, what the hell is that? I don't know. What, what is this? And, and, you know, I'm someone who... Uh, has for for very very long time probably always I'm a huge lover of competition I mean we all know that going into a you know grocery store that has all these uh first of all different grocery stores competing against it but they've got food on the shelves there, there's 10 different kinds of of baked beans there's competition everywhere and we know that this brings prices down it makes the product quality go up there's more responsiveness to consumers it's this constant process but assuming that, and we see even in more, more uh, you know, powerful ways things recently like, okay, you've got, uh, you know, the, the post office when there's no competition sucks, but the more that you have UPS or email competing with it, the more it has to sort of get better. We, we see this everywhere, but I think it's a big leap in many people's mind to say 
yeah, we need competition in laws as well and in legal structures and in, uh, you know, arbitration services and all these types of things. That was a big one for me at first to wrap my head around. Now it seems really, I'm, I'm very, very comfortable with it, but give us a, give us a quick definition of what is polycentric law and why should we not be scared of the concept of competition as applied to legal frameworks? Sure. The first thing I'll say is, by the way, people who kind of dig in their heels or, or you know, it tips their heads back to, to hear this, I think they're, they're smart because it is a different kind of market. It's not as easy as jumping from, you know, donuts to law as saying, well, competition is good <laughs> in both. It's, it's more complicated. So um, the, a quick definition would be polycentric law is basically law or a legal order which issues from more than one center of authority. So you have overlapping jurisdictions um, and different rule sets coexisting, certainly in a complex uh, uh, environment. Sometimes it looks more like a mosaic where there are lots of little communities with bumping borders, but very often overlapping jurisdictions. And it, so that's a, that's, a nor, uh, that's a positive description of the phenomenon. There's normative reasons to like it both ethical and, you know, simply in terms of increasing efficiency. But the one thing to observe is historically, it is a fact. In fact, when you look at a globe and everything's marked out in clear, bright lines and every country's a solid country uh, color, that is a, a, a simplification of the world as the world has always been and as it is today. So we actually live in a polycentric world. Part of the program is just kind of saying, you know, snapping your fingers in front of people's faces and saying, hey, hey, wake up. When you when you look for it, it's everywhere. And if you want to understand our world, you got to understand polycentric law. Hmm. That uh, reminds me of a um, related uh, phenomenal essay I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with by John Hasness on oh, yeah. the obviousness of anarchy. And he, and he, had, he keeps repeating <laughs> that phrase, look around. You, know, you, you wonder how would it be possible to have any kind of order without one central monopoly on it? And he says, look around. It's all over the place. There's, you know, that I, well, one of the ways I've used to illustrate this is in, in my sort of simplistic way. I call it the, the naked in the shopping mall test. And I ask, I ask people, if indecent exposure laws were overturned today, how many of you would go run naked in a shopping mall tomorrow? And of course, no one raises their hand. And I say, well, why is that? If, it, if it's not that law that's preventing you, what is preventing you? And, and when you start to scratch the surface, you realize there's this complex web of, of overlapping both formal and informal. Maybe the mall has a policy that's totally separate from a state or municipal law. But there's also informal social norms that you're going to you're going to pay some kind of social price for being the guy who runs naked through the shopping mall. Um and, and I think just realizing the first step is realizing that the order that we already observe doesn't all descend from a single legal authority. And that's a big step. That's a hard thing for many people to realize. Mm -hmm. It is in a way, it's the sort of intellectually, the sort of the development that people also go through in their emotional lives because you're brought up in a family where there is one source of authority, you know, maybe two if you want to count your parents, but from a kid's I don't know. Actually, you could probably do something with this. From a kid's point of view, it's at least, you know, a, a few authorities and it's always very clear. And then as you mature, you begin to recognize, you know, you have a coach on the baseball field and you've got a, a pastor at, on Sundays and you get a teacher at school and you, you learn to recognize other authorities and you realize it's overlapping, right? The preacher tells me not to curse and then dad teaches me some really cool words. And, you know, you learn how to navigate between these different authority sets. So how do you respond to the to the critique? Okay, so if we're in this world with all these 
overlapping sort of legal systems. Um, what happens when they come in conflict? Don't you need one meta meta system that overarches everything? That's the final arbiter of, of conflict. Yeah. Well, um, you can think of things that way in a pyramidal system. Uh, when you push that as a good philosopher would, you discover that at least as regards conventional political authorities, the, the foundations uh, of the apex are sort of really weak. It's, it's, it's hard to see why. Most people, you ask them for this, and they end up with, oh, well, then it's the federal government. That's sort of the buck stops at the federal government. It's the biggest, baddest dog on the block. But then you start looking into why that's a good authority, and it's a pretty bad <laughs> set of reasons. It's pretty unconvincing. So, there, so in the real world, that's not a very satisfying explanation. And also philosophically, if you like a good philosopher pushes, you realize if democratic rule is what you want to use, man, that's a really bad foundation. And anyhow, what you end up saying at the end of the day when you go out there and you look around is there is not finally at the end of the day for every kind of conflict one overarching authority. And may there never be. That would be kind of a disaster. That's putting uh, the, 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 the keys to the car in the hands of a mob. You know, it's just not any way to get around. You know, it's interesting. There's a, a paper it's a relatively old paper, if I recall, and I am I am forgetting for the life of me the author. It's Paul something, I believe, but it's mm. it's called Do We Ever Really Get Out of Anarchy? And he makes a fascinating argument that from seeing from a from a certain perspective, all you have are basically different kinds of anarchy. And and within, say, a given government itself, mm -hmm. the the people within that government exist within a state of anarchy relative to each other. So there's no mm -hmm. there's no overarching you know, meta government that makes sure that the people within the government uh, are obeying their own internal laws. They're right. kind of navigating that. And then same on an international scale. There is no one world government. Um, and certainly in, in international, uh, both with, with countries, you know, sort of if they have conflict with each other, there's no one world government they can appeal to. But, it, but even international commerce, um, there's no overarching single authority that can sort of be the ultimate decider. You've got You've got sort of the mutual self-interest of the different parties involved is really the only thing um, that keeps the order, if, if I understand yeah. it correctly. Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. And I think most people will get this if you ask them, I don't know, you pose a scenario like this. Suppose that tomorrow the federal government passed a, a rule that nobody, you know, nobody really liked. And you can imagine things very much like that happen all the time. Um, Basically, at the end of the day, the only reason why people would obey it is if you can convince that federal police officer to pull out his gun and threaten you. And if also he or she is unconvinced, it's not going to happen. Ultimately, it's in some unsatisfactory sense, the community at large that determines whether or not there's any political authority behind those badges. But, you know, when you take it to that level of analysis, it's pretty unsatisfying. And so what you end up with is concluding, oh, there's actually a lot of competing Individuals and entities, you know, methodologically, it sometimes makes sense to treat cohesive groups of people as a functionally one entity in some regards. I don't think the federal government qualifies as such. It's a big, loose kind of grab bag of different interests. But mm. but beyond that, yeah, the buck never stops. It just keeps circulating. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so given that the world we live in today basically has a polycentric law and competing overlapping jurisdictions and governance. What is it that you're advocating? So, so you're advocating that, hey, we could have even more competition, even more diversity in law and a less 
um, you know, less of a, at least an attempted monopoly by, by a single entity. What, what would that look like? How do we need to increase that if it already exists to a degree? Yeah, uh, well, that is pretty much where I end up. Although really though, the first step, Isaac, is that purely positivist, hey, let's look at the facts, people. And then you look at the facts and you go, wow, there's a lot of competition in governing services, I like to say, you know, not politics. You can have private or, or public, or I like to say political or private providers of governing services. So that's just the fact. And that alone is like a big win. If you get people to kind of look up and go, wow, it's not just a, a, a sequence of flags. There's more going on. Then you say, given this fact, we all recognize this structural feature of our social lives. You know, let's talk about these uh, variables. Will good things happen? Will we like it if we kind of up the competition? And, you know, I think there's a good case for that. It's, it's uh, not purely a positivist case. I admit there's a lot of normativism that comes into my approach to this because I just don't like coercion. I really <laughs> like consent. <laughs> I'm willing to take a stand on that one. Um, but yeah, so, so but I don't want to push too hard because I'm not certain myself. I used to be a diehard kind of anarcho-capitalist. My joke, it wasn't just a joke. My, my, my approach was I said, I'm trying it out for a year. So for a whole year, I kind of put on this, oh, I'm an anarcho-capitalist hat. And I walked around and looked at the world and it a lot made sense and some things didn't. And so where I am today is I think we can go a lot farther in that direction. And I want to open people's eyes to that. And I want to make changes in the world that allow that to happen, at least in, in some environments where we can push freedom a little farther, maybe a lot farther. But but all revolution, another one of my slogans is revolution at the margin. All revolution happens at the margin. Yeah. I don't know how far we can go that way, but I know, I'm pretty sure we can get a lot more freedom. Let's well, just try it and see. Well, there's so much beauty to that, you know, I guess in, in the academic jargon, you might call it like comparative institutional analysis to say, yeah. Yeah. let's just let's just realize that there's all kinds of different institutions here and let's look at all of them and compare them not only to each other, but to the relevant possible alternatives right now. Um, so, you know, I, I, this is one of the things that in, I had Pete Leeson on in a show and one, it's a lot of his work, you know, he's looked at places like Somalia or whatever, which no one wants to go live in Somalia. But if you compare Somalia under more or less no governments to govern specific government to Somalia under a government, it fares maybe slightly better and that's maybe the only like that, that. That's maybe the possible. Uh, that's maybe the the next possible institution they have. They they don't have the option of immediately transitioning to let's say the United States, which is a great segue to this charter cities <laughs> idea. Okay, so I'm gonna give a, a bit of a setup, but I don't want to talk too much. I want to get your thoughts. Institutional economics. Um, I think bringing the institutional and public choice insights into the field of development economics has been huge, hugely valuable. Um, I know people like Darren Asimoglu and some others, um, certainly um, Hernando de Soto, have recognized, okay, you can't just go to a poor country and say, uh, you know, here's a bunch of money, start a bunch of programs. Uh, here, why don't you learn better farming techniques and make them wealthy? It's the institutions that matter. Those shape the incentives. And so if they have bad property rights, for example, no one will engage in capital improvements um, to improve their production of their farming or whatever it might be if they, if they can't rely on their property rights, et cetera. But that, that realization is powerful, but it's, tend to, uh, it's tended to lead to some, some I think, maybe maybe what Hayek would call the fatal conceit, some sort of sort of freedom by central planning. Okay, let's come in and drop titles from helicopters, not literally, but let's give people titles. <laughs> but if they don't kind of have an informal set of institution that values those titles, 
it's kind of just like a paper title that's supposed to create a property right where there's no there's no sort of organic uh, respect for that that emerges. So how does the concept of a charter city um, kind of realize that reality and do a better job than some of like DeSoto's efforts to just give people title to property that haven't worked too well? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Wow, great questions. Um, well, first of all, I'll say there are there are other approaches to this problem. Charter cities is associated with Paul Romer. He's a brilliant, not libertarian, but a brilliant economist. And um, other approaches vary slightly from, from his, the charter cities. But I'll, I'll give you the answer on his because his is kind of the leading approach. Romer was influenced by the example of Hong Kong, where effectively you have exactly the same culture and people as on mainland China. Same language. Everything's the same, really, except they have different rules in Hong Kong, or at least they used to have different rules in Hong Kong than on the mainland. And so in Mao's era, literally, people were starving, literally, by the tens of millions. They were eating grass and sometimes each other. And they could look over the fence into Hong Kong. And back then, Hong Kong wasn't as wealthy as it later became. But it was already very clear that it was working in a way that mainland China was not. Before too long, of course, they had among the highest per capita incomes in the world. But in Mao's era, you could see that. And Mao didn't do anything about it. But people who survived the Mao era did even then start noticing that. And later, they jumped on it. And they basically took the rules from Hong Kong. People say Hong Kong took over they say China took over Hong Kong. I, I say Hong Kong took over China, really, <laughs> in the relevant sense. And so Romer noticed that, too. Lots of people have noticed that. And he said, man, why can't we do that elsewhere? Why can't we go to, say, Honduras, where they have a long and tortured history of bad government, and they have some really interesting, innovative government programs going, where they have sort of invited outsiders to come in and set up special zones where different rules were, will apply. And, and Romer's idea was, he actually helped push that along, and his idea was we go to a place like Honduras and bring in, say, you know, Canadian rules. Just like in Hong Kong, they had effectively British rules and British legal institutions. We'll do that in other countries. It'll all be voluntary. This time we won't use gunboats, none of that. But, you know, Honduras will say somehow to Canada, somehow they'll get together. Romer will bring, bring them together somehow. And Canada will end up running part of Honduras, and the Hondurans, hardworking, smart people, really could succeed, now finally have the rules they need, secure property rights, rule of law, respect for, for civil liberties, and we have Hong Kong and Central America. So that's the goal. That's the idea. And and so it, in some ways, it's it's saying, give me a little tiny slice of, you know, a, a piece of land that you're going to say, this piece of land is not going to be subject to the the rest of the sort of Honduran law. It's going to be, uh, for some, maybe for some sort of payment or something, we're going to allow a, 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 another legal system to govern it. And by showing through example, how powerful and beneficial that is, it will sort of ramp up the competition and force either Honduras to improve its own laws or for them to say, hey, this is working. Let's expand this. Um, is that kind of the general theory? Well, you're actually taking it a step further and you're going in the right direction. So so the first step, the first good thing is, hey, look, people in these zones can, you know, invest in businesses, make money, learn new skills, engage in trade, and, you know, they're better off. But yes, institutionally, the long-term goal is people elsewhere in the country say, we want that too. <laughs> So, yeah, it steps up and makes the Honduran government step up their game. So they kind of invite in, and this is why this kind of program is a little hard to get started, that the extant government has to kind of invite in competition. Hmm. 
And mostly competitors don't like, I mean, I shouldn't say competitors, mostly people don't like competition at all. They don't want to become competitors. They just want to have everything for themselves. Yeah. So yeah. hooray for the Hondurans. Very brave what they've tried. It hasn't worked out yet, but they've made some progress. Well, you know, and it's so interesting when you, um, when you look at, you know, what are the ways to improve uh, the conditions of the poorest people? And the most obvious solution is let them leave and go to a place where they can immediately have a much better standard of living and more opportunity. Um, but we have all kinds of immigration restrictions. Not only that, it's hard and costly to leave if you don't know the language, if you don't have the money to um, you know, move to a different country, et cetera. So this is essentially, let's bring the reasons for that, the, the existence of more opportunity in a place like Canada. Let's bring that to you. Yep. Uh, so it's sort of reverse, reverse immigration. Yep. Um, okay. So there was a whole bunch of buzz and it seemed like a lot of excitement, like a lot was happening. If I recall, like 2012, 2013 in Honduras and with some of this charter city stuff, I haven't heard anything about it in a good year or two. What's the status? Why that, what, what happened to that initiative? And is this kind of doomed to failure everywhere it's tried, or is there some way that it can work more effectively? I don't think it's doomed to failure at all. In fact, I'll observe that that the Honduran project, although it's farther out there than anybody else has taken it, is not unprecedented. Things like this have been done before and kind of are happening right now. It's just the Hondurans have, have uh, advocated pushing it a lot farther. Um, right now, it looks like things are kind of uh, on hold because uh, the Hondurans are working out things with the South Korean government to develop the southern Pacific coast of their country, the area around the Gulf of Fonseca. And the, as far as I can tell, the players in that environment are not the most kind of entrepreneurial and risk-taking. We, we are there seeing kind of large institutions, well-meaning but big and slow, kind of gradually put in place a big infrastructure-rich, super capital-intensive project. Whether or not they'll get any funders to step up and, and, and finance all that remains to be seen. That's not what the South Korean government is doing. So basically, long story short, things are moving slowly because there's not just one but two governments involved. <laughs> what what was the how did South Korea end up getting involved? What was the um, impetus? What was the the yeah. reason that Honduras would want to to involve them? I don't know the whole background, but sort of the general vibe I get is that South Korea, as part of its foreign policy, likes to go abroad and do good works and also establish ties that can help their local uh, exporters uh, develop new markets. I mean, they're not fools and they know you got to go to poor places if you want to get room to grow or see economic growth. And they're well-meaning people, as far as I can tell. They really want, you know, their neighbors across the Pacific to do better. Why not? Um, so, so they've been helping the Hondurans. Basically, they uh, have authored for them a $2 million study that says things like, uh, well, here's the best place to put a deep water port, and you'll need a rail line there, but you're going to need this much gravel to fill in the swampy places. And by the way, South Korea has some of the largest, most efficacious construction firms in the world. So I don't doubt that they're top of the queue when it comes time to, you know, seeking bids on this work. But they're not the people to actually probably finance the work. For that, we need some other players. Okay, so it sounds it sounds to me like these projects are, it, you know, the way that I would envision them in theory is this very beautiful. A country says, "Here you go. Here's a piece of land," and you know, uh, some entity or corporation or other country, you have the jurisdiction, and it's just like it's left alone. And now whoever wants to come <laughs> in can come in. But it sounds like in reality. 
it has a much more sort of corporatist like, hey, we'll come in and bring in a company if you'll spend some tax dollars to put in a railroad. And is it a little bit more messy and, and sort of some, some crony capitalist stuff going on? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> There's been a lot of good research on this um, by kind of people who are both <laughs> hard-eyed and skeptical of SEZs. And frequently they... Sometimes they don't work. I mean, the failures, I think, actually are a good sign. Sometimes SEZ, special economic zones, uh, okay. special economic zones kind of are, the Hondurans have created kind of a proposal for a super uh, special economic zone in that it's really a special economic and legal zone. But special economic zones are very common and they don't always succeed. And I think it's a good thing because it means and that, and that is failure. It's a certain sign. As, as distinct from a charter city or something more robust, it, it basically exempts people within that zone from the economic restrictions, but not necessarily yeah. the legal. Okay. Yeah, usually it's some. I mean, really, it, 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 economic is legal in a sense, right? It's the, the legal rules, but they have they're, mm -hmm. they're targeted on economic. So there's no customs duties typically in an SEZ. Sometimes you have lighter uh, labor, sometimes lighter environmental regs. Uh, not as often, but sometimes. Uh, different tax regime. Uh, you allow foreign ownership. Uh, there's all different kinds of ways, but they're usually oriented on creating ties to the world economy. Uh, often with kind of an implicit subsidy to the local firms. They don't have to pay customs, but the people right over the fence have to pay customs. Okay. And, you know, so it's often not very pure, and it sometimes works, and sometimes it doesn't. And in Honduras, so it's complicated. You know, it's just institutionally, it's difficult to convince an extant power to give up some power. The incentives have to line up just so. doesn't happen much. I think the Hondurans are getting there. But there's other complications. Here's the thing I think, Isaac, they really missed, frankly, that I think Paul Romer missed, that the whole charter model misses, and that is that even countries like Honduras, which has some real problems, they've had the highest per capita murder rate in the world for several years running. They've really been hit hard by the nastiest of U.S. exports, the drug war. Terrible, mm. terrible. But um, even there they have pride. And I think, actually, they kind of balked at the notion that the Canadians were going to be on their soil with their flag running there. It's their country, damn it. And that's why I think a better approach, really, I think not just for libertarian reasons or economic efficiency reasons, but for political reasons, a better approach is not the Romer approach, which says, let's layer one flag on top of another, but rather a different approach that basically says, let's not have any flag in this zone. Yeah. Let's say to the host government, why don't you just kind of ease up on your, actually the host government says you, we will ease up on yes. our regs. So now they're the one who's leading, they're the innovator and they can yeah. take credit. Yeah. And they step back and they say, we're going to leave some room for you. This is what the Hondurans have really done, but because of the kind of corporatist, corporatist, big government development so far, this innovation hasn't happened, but it's what I've been promoting and the people I work with, basically Honduras has already said, we'll step back. We want you to bring in your rules. We haven't been very clear yet about what those rules, what rules <laughs> will accept, but but they have said in Honduras, it's a civil law country. They've said, we want you, you have to use common law rules in these special zones, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, my approach, my philosophy is bring in flag-free rules. And you can do that so easily. You say, we're going to implement the restatements of the common law. They're, they're privately generated. The private organization generates the restatements of the common law. It's basically a summation of all the wonderful rules of contract and tort and property law that really make the world work, not regulations, but bottom-up rules that reflect custom. And so basically we can do that in Honduras, in theory. we got to get a lot of people to agree. 
But yeah, we could do that in theory in Honduras. And I think it'd be an easier sell politically because then the Hondurans could say, the Honduran government could say, we're not flying anybody's flag. It's Honduras. It's Honduran soil. And we, in our foresight, have invited these foreigners under our thumbs to implement some rules, which we agree to. And no other flag is on our soil. And I think it's actually really important in a kind of very atavistic sense. I don't really get it myself, but everybody else seems to be really patriotic. <laughs> you know, every we're all we're always wary of those aggressive Canadians trying to take over more <laughs> our territory. You know, it's interesting um, how deep some of that stuff goes in some of the sort of public choice incentive problems. I'm reminded of many, many, probably a, a decade or two ago in the city of Detroit, there was a there was a, a wealthy um, businessman turned philanthropist who essentially offered to build like 15 charter schools mm -hmm. and to let them close down after like two years if they didn't have a ridiculous like 90% graduation rate or something like that. And in Detroit, the public school graduation rate is like 20% or 30%. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was going to front the money to build all these like 15, I don't know, some like millions and millions, hundred million dollars, something like that. And um, the, the teachers unions basically wouldn't let him. And uh, so he, he's like, I'm done with this city and took his money and walked. <laughs> and, and, and considering the unwillingness to say, you know, for, for a self-interested government to say, yeah, we'll take a bunch of free resources to, to build some stuff <laughs> because of the fear of competition. Um, I'm just reminded that when I think of another initiative I've heard about in Detroit, this idea of taking Bell Isle, this, this uh, Island, yeah. you've probably heard of this, right. And, and do oh, basically book, a, yeah. a private Bobby city. Lockwood. Yeah, Rodney Lockwood wrote a really charming, kind of quirky little book about his idea there. A lot of good ideas in it. He's a he's an iconoclast, but I think we all are in this field. <laughs> well, it's it's. I think it starts with it starts with dreaming, right? It starts with science fiction. It starts with it starts with making people opening up imagination to kind of get comfortable with the concept. Um, and little by little, you can you can sort of start to have some some practical tests of that. So I I always kind of admire the the big crazy uh, proposals like that that you know may not be may, may not be on the verge of happening, but they they might open up some some minds to consider. Oh. Hey, that's a that's kind of a cool oh. idea. It's so true, and it goes both ways in terms of you know positive externalities because you look at a person we've all forgotten about now, most of us, but. Not all of us, Edward Bellamy. I noticed him because he's got Bell in his name, which pisses me off because he was an American author. He was a socialist who swayed a lot of people. He wrote this utopian novel called Looking Backward. And it was kind of like, it's a weird setup. But basically it was a way for him to give his vision of how society should evolve. And he knocked a lot of people off their feet and they got all wrapped up in this socialism stuff from this romantic, totally impractical kind of sci-fi story. And he's the guy who came up with, uh, he came up with the uh, Pledge of Allegiance, hmm. had people doing the Heil Hitler thing. That's the guy we're talking about. And so, you know, we need people to write that kind of work on the other side of the fence. Yeah. Maybe it's been written. I mean, stuff like, there's a lot of good stuff out there, sci-fi, but I don't know that Bellamy got there first. It seems like he kind of had a bad influence on a turn of the century culture and uh, we're still recovering. <laughs> well, so what do you think about some of these other things out there like seasteading? What's the, what's the, because in, in the case of seasteading, if, if someone yeah. was able to actually get a platform out there in international waters, they wouldn't be dealing with any embedded institutions. They'd be starting from scratch, essentially. Um, what are yeah. your thoughts on that? I love me the seasteaders. I got good <laughs> friends there. Basically, it's interesting. You're looking at well, I'll say two things. One is that's evidence for a thesis I'm pushing in my upcoming book, Your Next Government, that we are entering a Cambrian age of 
of evolution of government structures, which does not mean, of course, everything succeeds. There's going to be some flops. I just mean there's a lot of interesting stuff really going on now that people aren't aware of. And it's not and part of it that polycentric, we live in a polycentric law. That's part of that uh, world. We do live in a polycentric world, but you really, this Cambrian age has been going on. We're in the middle of it. And most people don't realize it. They look at a globe or a map and they think everything's the same as always. It is not. <laughs> um, and the other thing uh, to observe is that um, it's interesting when you look at the seasteaders and then the people who want to do things like that on land, everybody's got costs. On land, you got to deal with the people who own the dirt and their governments, and most of the time they don't want competition. And so you think, well, I'm going to escape to the ocean. But it turns out building things on the ocean is really difficult. It's a harsh, <laughs> harsh environment. There's corrosive liquid everywhere. It's turbulent. And so everybody has costs. It's either putting together a ship that will hold people and not sink, or it's dealing with governments. And that's what's holding us back. So what do you think about another idea that doesn't, potentially require either of those, um, although I suppose it might, but but this idea of essentially digital citizenship. Um, and I know Estonia has taken some very small steps in this regard. You can, you can get some kind of limited citizenship by applying online. I don't, it doesn't make you a full citizen. And if you're in the U S uh, you can basically never escape U S taxes for life yet. But, but um, <laughs> what do you think about the prospects of that? Where it's say, Hey, instead of, instead of trying to move people in physical objects, uh, let's just let people digitally join jurisdictions that are not based on geography. Yeah, yeah. Well, whiskey or not, Isaac, you're a man after my heart. I tell you, you we're, we're thinking of the same things. Like <laughs> I was writing about that topic this morning. I'm working in a very narrow area of copyright, and I won't get into all the details, but basically I'm looking for ways to implement copyright-like policies using uh, public blockchain databases. And of course, it's the blockchain database that runs Bitcoin and allows it to do these really wonderful things. And so, yeah, you're totally onto something. The observation I want to push a little bit in this paper, it's not original to me, but I want to kind of explore it myself because I've read other people writing on it and I can see they're onto something, is I, I want to explore what kinds of functions traditionally provided by polities, political communities, can public blockchain databases provide for us. And people have already surmised that you can have a pretty good property titling system done through public blockchains. Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's some other things. I mean, that's really, it turns out it's super important to go back to DeSoto and the other rule of law folks you were citing earlier. I mean, DeSoto's, one of his brilliant insights is, wow, how holding title in a, in a public and reliable way is really important yeah. to make economies hum. And now we're seeing that, gee, you know, we can actually do that with a good internet connection and a couple of servers and some code. We don't actually need a bunch of people with guns to do that for <laughs> us. We can get authority through cryptography instead of big marble pillars and, and you know, lots of muscle. And that portends some really interesting changes. Now, you can only take that so far, of course. Uh, I won't say at the end of the day. We had this discussion earlier because I don't believe the buck does stop at the guy with the gun. So I won't say at the end of the day, but it does turn out the guys with the guns or the people with coercive force on the streets do have an important role to play in governance sometimes. But the question is, do they need, do we need to have a bundled kind of cable service? We got to bundle that with everything else. And no, yeah. I, don't, I don't think we do. And now we're with these digital technologies finding we can kind of pull off some of those kind of slowly unpeel the stuff that all got jammed together under one big roof. You know, we can let some of those services out into the competitive environment and that's where we're headed and it's going to be great. Yeah. The, the whole evolution of, of 
trustless systems I find really fascinating because one of the one of the reasons uh, or one of the monopolized areas that that governments have have taken traditionally is anything that that's highly valuable that requires a lot of trust. So you have to trust that somebody's the real owner of their house or trust that mm-hmm. the the money you're paying is actually worth what it says it's worth and it has some sort of backing. And that backing has been basically force. Well, this government says that it is and they're willing to enforce it, uh, you know, essentially at the point of the gun if need be or put you in jail if you violate a contract, whatever. Yep. And to, to the extent that those trust systems are really just about identity uh, or proving that you have an asset, um, there's no reason now that the the cryptography um, is is here, the blockchain, there's no reason that violence needs to be employed to prove a unique identity. And I think there's some some really powerful implications here that uh, a lot of people yeah. haven't, haven't considered. Yeah. yeah, the big picture kind of vision of this, if that's not a silly word to use, that I got the other day when I was thinking about really evolution of societies is how when societies are kind of at a, a rather a crude level, you have to use force to get things to work. It's like when you, you're doing caveman engineering, right? And you're, you're jamming logs together. Everything fits badly because you don't have <laughs> precision machining and you just kind of hammer it together. And that's like the use of force in social institutions. You can't get figure out how to get people to get along. So you just kind of push them around at the margin mm. once in a while and you jam them together. And we're getting better at this whole living together thing. We really are. <laughs> Humans are really sucking less all the time at being social animals. I got the evidence for it. You know, you look at, at uh, um, uh, The Better, Better Angel of Our Nature by uh, Pinker. I love that book. And um, recently we got below 10% of people living in extreme poverty. Mm. So yay, humans. And I think we see an evolution in the... Well, I was going to say political sphere, but I'm not going to say that. In what used to be almost exclusive, not doing caveman engineering, but using actually precision machining, where people get along because we find ways for them to agree, and we don't have to use a gun to convince them because we have good arguments and money. <laughs> oh, absolutely, and I think one, you know, all it's easy to kind of find and identify technological evolution and say, "Oh my gosh, we have smartphones today! Look at how much better we are than ten years ago! This is amazing." But I think there's been so much evolution in institutions, both formal and informal, especially informal, which sort of the, the formal ones follow on after a while, um, that, you know, I, I use this example that um, when institutions evolve, humans don't necessarily have to be better people in order to do better things. And technology is the same way, right? So, so you don't have to be stronger than someone 100 years ago was to be able to move a hundred times more dirt than they can in a day because you have a backhoe or something like that. Right. And institutions, you don't have to be a morally better person today to be, um, less likely to favor something, uh, horrific, like let's say slavery, you're just born into an institutional setting where you're not likely to favor slavery at all. Uh, because the institutional setting is totally different. A couple hundred years ago, you might have been. Um, and I just think that that institutional evolution is is a really powerful trend that um, I'm very optimistic about. Okay, I got to ask you about surfing. <laughs> okay. So you're a surfer and you're in Southern California, a great place to surf. But now you've got all these options, right? You can go surf Honduras when they have the charter <laughs> cities. Uh, I'm sure you can surf on a seastead. Now there's salt water on Mars. So we're only one step away from surfing uh, interstellar. Um, what, what's the, what's the story is, is there surfing in Honduras? There actually is. I've asked about that. It won't surprise you to know. You got to do some not, field research down there. I do. I need to go down there. I've been to Guatemala three times in the last few years, but 
have made it to Honduras. No, there's not great surfing there, as it turns out, just because of the way it's oriented and prevailing, you know, currents and things. But uh, I hear it's a great place to visit, and they have great scuba diving, which I also want to get into. Uh, so it's worth visiting in, for the salt water. Okay, so I'm gonna go about Mars. So, <laughs> well, so I need so I need some tips. So I've only ever surfed like a couple times, and most of those have been here in South Carolina, which. With the exception of, you know, every other year, a good storm swell is not, not much. I'm going to be, uh, in Ecuador. My family and I are going to spend six weeks in Ecuador, um, in early in 2016 in a, in a town called Mompiche, which is a, a surfing village. So what are your oh. tips for me? I'm like a, I'm like a noob. What do I need to do to, to, to not get killed out there? You're already way ahead of me, man. That sounds brilliant. You're going to spend, what, six weeks in a surf town in Ecuador? <laughs> yeah. Oh, all right. You're, most of your problems are solved. All you got to do now is all you got to do now is just find somebody who will take you out on a longboard. Start with a longboard. You know that, though, Isaac. We yep. talked about this. Start on a longboard and uh, make sure nobody's filming at the start because you're going to fall down a lot. And uh, just go out and have fun. The one who has the most fun wins. You can't lose with surfing because even if you never even stand up, you're out on the ocean oh. on a board and it's beautiful. And so it's, it's, yeah. it is amazing. So I shouldn't, I shouldn't bring my foam board. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think you should, because if, if they don't have one, you could sell that for major buck. You could say, you need this, my friend, amigo, you need this for the tourists. This is oh, called a, yeah, <laughs> great idea. Uh, so, are you still writing music, Tom? I know you're a musician and you've got some songs up on your website. You, you, you carry your guitar around with you. You still doing that? Yeah. Yeah. I carry the guitar in my truck. So whenever I go surfing, I like to sit down and sing a, a few songs to the ocean. I, I think of it as like, like I'm calling in the waves. If I really nail a song or two, it's like the waves will say, Oh yeah, we're going to show up. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm, I've been playing. I haven't written anything new lately. I've gotten to the point now where I've forgotten the songs I've written. So I'm, actually, <laughs> I'm going back to kind of see if I can remember. I've written them all down. I'm very compulsive about that. So I'm going back. I'm trying to build up my library so I actually can play the ones I've written before I write new ones. <laughs> yeah, you got so so now, you know, back in the day, you would have had to like pay a bunch of money to go to a recording studio if you ever wanted a recorded version. Now you take out your iPhone voice recorder and just like an acoustic guitar and, and someone singing, it doesn't sound half bad if you want to just get it there for posterity's sake. So true that's one reason why we need reform of copyright because the cost of producing and distributing uh, original works of authorship have just plummeted so why do we need to have such strong protections to encourage authors to produce we don't actually because they can do it on the cheap you can do it for just the love of music now and reach the whole world oh that is that is such a great teaser because i'm i, I want to do an episode <laughs> i haven't yet about intellectual property um that's a that's a great that's a great teaser uh you have a new book coming out. You mentioned um, it's called Your Next Government? Question mark. Is that correct? Well, I don't know about the question mark. I'm talking with some folks at a university publishing house, and it's a really good one. And they seem a little skeptical about the question mark. And if they say no, I'll go, yeah, whatever you say, man. As long as you publish it, sure. Don't tell them that. But yeah, I'll give away on the question mark. But I will say, yes, there's question mark. Your next government? And I like that because I don't want to pretend like I have all the answers. I, I want to talk about ways to set up institutions or frameworks for institutions where we can discover, you know, whether or not what our next governments should look like. But I don't have all the answers. I just know what direction I think we ought to go. And there's a subtitle to the book. If I recall, uh, you did like a crowdsource yeah, question yes. on Facebook about and the you subtitle. Gave it to me. 
Yeah. Yeah. I did. Oh, oh, I, I kind of that forgot. That was you, man. Oh, yeah. yeah. I no, honestly, I I looked at it and I thought. I think I remember commenting on that on Facebook, but I couldn't remember. It's it's like nation states to stateless nations or yeah. something like that. From from the nation state. Well, this is the way I like it. Yeah. And yeah. From the nation state. So you start with the unitary thing to stateless nations. Let the world know, as they will if this book comes out. That was Isaac Morehouse gave me the idea for that subtitle. I already got you in my notes, buddy. So if that stays in there, you're going to have a footnote. Hey, you like how I was fishing for that one. Um, yeah. When does the book come it. out? Well, I don't know. I'm talking to this publisher now and probably in the spring. I'm hoping okay. into the spring. Okay. Uh, Tom W. Bell, you can find his website. It is tomwbell.com. Uh, he has a lot of his papers on there on copyright, on polycentric law, but he also has something we didn't touch on, inventions, uh, music, <laughs> all kinds of great stuff on there. Tom, thank you so much for coming on and talking. Thank you, Isaac. It's been a great pleasure.